we are going to read from an Old Testament book, Joshua, chapter 23, which is the second to last chapter of that book. And it's a time when Israel have come to rest after, remember, they've entered the promised land and they've done battle with um, many peoples and overcome um, many enemies and some not yet. Um, But... Uh, Israel has been given land there. Joshua's divvied it up amongst the tribes, and um, this is where we catch up with them. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain along with all the nations that I have already cut off. From the Jordan to the great sea in the west, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you, if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down before them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. Thank you, Jude, for reading scripture for us. uh, You know, some of you might be wondering, because it says it twice, 
when it says that Joshua was well advanced and old, like well adv- old and well advanced in years, you might have been wondering, like, how old? Because we're supposed to take the Bible personally, right? And then, so suddenly you're sitting there thinking, am I old and well advanced in years? And um, you're also supposed to read the Bible in context. So the next chapter tells you that Joshua was 110 years old. So let me assure you that um, if you're not 110, then you're not old and well advanced in years. So we are all young folks here today. But there were some rather sobering and encouraging words in Joshua 23. Let me pray for us. Uh, Dear God, in Jesus' name, would you open up our hearts and minds to you today as we hear your word preached. Lord, we treasure it. Uh, We recognize that it is without error and full authority and full of life-giving power. So Lord, please do do your good work by your spirit in us as we hear your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, librarians and English teachers and parents of young children this week sat up and took notice because it came out that a certain publishing house had decided to edit a series of beloved children's books by the author Rodal. Uh, Books such as Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, Matilda, and so forth. And the reason why is that it seems that Rodal systematically said mean things about, well, he would call them fat people, okay? And that is, honestly, that is not okay. Uh, and, And that's what he did, and maybe that's why some people loved his books, but... Um, The editors, with an eye towards current profits, perhaps, or maybe just uh, sincere convictions, have decided to rewrite the poetry to make it kinder and gentler. Uh, It also came out this week that one of the largest English-speaking Christian denominations is considering whether to rewrite in their prayers and liturgies and songs, the pronouns concerning God, um, the masculine pronouns, he and him, father, son, uh, maybe it could be they, or maybe it could be parent and child. And, um, and now it's true, we learned this in John chapter four, Jesus tells the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, that God is a spirit. And so we can rightly conclude, seriously, that that God has no body as we do. And so you can see that there's a real debate there as to how should we refer to God. In his word, he refers to himself as he. Uh, So people discuss that. Now, I am not here this morning. None of us are here to discuss overweight stereotypes in children's lit or masculine pronouns. Those two subjects have something to do with Joshua 23 in this way, that what we have here is a page of the Bible 
that a lot of people would like to rewrite. They would like to edit out certain things. In our particular moment of human history, this business of Israel being commanded by God to put to death each and every Canaanite person in the land and take the land of Canaan, not only does that sound colonial, it sounds inhumane and greedy and, well, genocidal and just not the kind of thing that we can imagine that Jesus would want anybody to do. And so there are people who would prefer that this page simply, and maybe this whole book of Joshua, they would prefer that it were not in the scripture. They, they would either edit it heavily and rewrite it or just skip over it. And admittedly, it is rather disturbing that God commanded Israel to execute all the Canaanites. We won't put a happy face on that. What's going on here? When God promises here in verse 5 to push the Canaanites out, is that just kind of like, oh, I bumped into you and I'm pushing you? No, to drive them out of the land. When, when Joshua writes that, he's saying, and, and God, through Joshua, is saying that judgment day had arrived for Canaan. And and there is a day coming for all of us, for the entire earth, when Jesus, in Matthew 25, he says he's going to come back. He calls himself the Son of Man. He says when the Son of Man comes in all his glory and his holy warrior angels with him, that Jesus is going to divide, separate the whole human race into the sheep and the goats. And to the sheep, he will welcome them into everlasting happiness and to the goats, to everlasting destruction. And that's judgment day. Well, judgment day came early or sooner for Canaan. Does God have a right to just judge us and enact some sort of ultimate penalty because of our sin? Well, the sobering answer is yes. God does have that right. But why would he single out the Canaanites ahead of time? Now, it's true. They were guilty of horrific crimes. But but is the death penalty the answer? Well, God's ultimate answer is the gospel. His ultimate answer is Christ. But by judging Canaan ahead of time, God was sending a message to Israel, and he's sending a message to us. The message to Israel included at least this. God was saying, I am taking this land from them, and I'm giving it to you for free. And if you end up rebelling against me as Canaan did, then you also will be pushed out and driven out. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, that's exactly what happened. The message that God is sending us here is that not only does our sin deserve judgment, but God is preparing us to meet the one 
whom Joshua's whole life was pointing towards. Um, This person, more righteous than Joshua, will give us not just a piece of real estate in the Middle East, he will give to us an eternal, unshakable kingdom. Now, you know I'm talking about Jesus, right? And uh, Jesus in English, Jesus in Greek, Yeshua in Aramaic. This is the only word I know in these languages. Um, (laughs) Joshua in Hebrew. It's all the same name. Joshua and Jesus, same first name. And that name means Savior. So Joshua saved Israel from death and enslavement in the land of Canaan through military battle. Jesus saved you and me by taking that destruction that we deserved upon himself when he took our place dying for us on the cross. So before we go hastily editing out a page or a verse or a line from scripture that understandably worries us and distresses us in its horrific violence, we need to see that Jesus, instead of erasing part of the scripture, he fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament violence by taking that violence upon himself when he was bruised for our iniquities, when he was crucified for our rebellion. Jesus was pushed out, kicked out, booted out, so that we can be welcomed in permanently into the family of God. Instead of writing out the violence of the Bible, Jesus absorbed that violence into his infinitely strong, infinitely loving, infinitely holy person. At the cross, instead of calling down those warrior angels to wipe out his enemies, you remember that Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The violence in the Old Testament is not telling you that God used to be angry, and now he's kind of softened up. The violence in the Old Testament is there in part so that you can appreciate the depths of the love of God the Father in giving for your sake his only begotten Son, Christ our Lord. So here in Joshua, that war of conquest in chapter 23, that war of conquest has ended for the most part. The tribes have received their inherited land. God has given them rest. It's true they still need to finish the job because some of the Canaanites who are under the judgment of God are still hanging around. And God is not suggesting to any of us that we go out there and find some Canaanites to take care of them. Far from it. Our unfinished business is quite different from the unfinished business of Israel. If you can start to see that Joshua's final speech to the elders in Joshua 23, if you can start to see that that speech foreshadows Jesus's final speech to his disciples before ascending into heaven, 
then you can start connecting some dots and you'll see that our unfinished business as a church is to go out and find, not find a Canaanite to destroy them, but go out and find someone from any nation, from every nation of the world, and love them in such a way that we can introduce them to Jesus. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus said to his disciples, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Joshua is telling the elders in this speech, you have been witnesses to the amazing deeds of God. Uh, You have seen God at work in unmistakable, miraculous ways. You have witnessed some amazing miracles. And so in light of God's grace, how should you live? Well, first of all, Joshua is telling them and us that we are to live a life that is shaped again and again by the gospel. Um, What would that mean, the gospel in Joshua 23? Well, Joshua reminds these leaders of Israel what God has brought them through. And you would do well to think, what, what, what has God brought you through? He's, he's, brought, he's brought you through a lot. What has God brought you through? Look at verse 3. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. That, that was the Old Testament gospel, basically. That God brought you out of slavery in the land of Egypt and has given you a land for free that you do not deserve, farms and cities that you did not develop or build. God is giving you a new life. Now, you have not seen what Israel saw. They saw the Jordan River divide in two. They saw the you know, Jericho walls come tumbling down. They saw the sun standing still in the sky. It's like, well, if I saw that, then I would, I would live a life shaped by the gospel. What have you seen? You, you've seen your own life changed by the Holy Spirit. You've seen other people's lives changed. You've seen answers to prayer. In light of God's grace to you, in light of the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, live a life shaped By that gospel. Now, secondly, from Joshua's speech, we receive this call to devote your life, devote the rest of your life to the unfinished business God has for you. Joshua is enlisting the elders of Israel to finish this mission of judgment upon the Canaanite nations. That was their unfinished business. What what do you think your unfinished business is? Your remaining mission, the calling that you should keep working on as long as God gives you breath. What is it? Israel was given a mission of death. Go judge the rest of the Canaanites. 
Now, how long was that going to take? Back in Exodus 23, the Lord told Moses to tell the people this. He said, I will not drive them out before you in one year. Otherwise, the land would become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you become fruitful and inherit the land. So the conquest of Canaan was going to take some time, at least longer than a year. God, and this might bug you, God is rarely in a big hurry, okay? But he does want Israel to finish well. So so what does God want you to do in however many years you have left? God has you here for a reason. What, what, What is it? Thirdly, in Joshua's speech, he exhorts Israel's leaders to be strong. Strong in what? Verse 6, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. He's telling them to love God by obeying God. Giving special consideration to two things. Worship. And marriage. Look at verse 7. He says, Do not make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. It's like, wow, God is really policing our speech. I can't even say the name Baal or Ashtoreth. I mean, Joshua is envisioning a future for Israel in which their lives are so saturated by the wonder of Yahweh, the great I am, that they don't even have vocabulary bandwidth for the foolish falsehoods of this God or that God. God cares about who you worship. What gods do your neighbors worship? What what do you worship? I mean, most of us are tempted to worship ourselves. Some of us worship our family. Whatever I ultimately trust in to get me through in life, I might be worshiping. So look at what Joshua says in verse 8. Instead of clinging to all of these false securities that we are tempted to cling to, verse 8, you shall cling to the Lord your God. In verse 11, Joshua says, be very careful to love the Lord your God, to cling, which sounds kind of needy in a bad way, but to cling to God is to have a deep and abiding affection for the Lord, to hold on to him tightly, not, be, not just because your life depends on it, but because you love him. So give special consideration to what you worship. Also give careful consideration to marriage, to your marriage. Marriage is a powerful thing for good or for ill. It's a relationship that involves your entire person, body and soul. And so Joshua says, look, verse 12, don't make marriages with the Canaanites because, verse 13, eventually they will become a snare, a trap to you, and God will 
judge you as well. So this marriage command in Joshua 23, it is truly not about ethnicity or nationality or race or anything like that. It's about marrying someone who shares your covenant commitment to the Lord God. Do you have the same faith in Christ? That is what is at issue here. It's about sharing that same spiritual commitment to Jesus. Now, if you are married to a non-Christian, God still is going to do amazing things for his glory in your life. That's not the point. But if you are not yet married and you're wondering, whom should I marry? Joshua 23 speaks to you and says, marry someone who's already in a forever relationship with God. The, the idea, you know, Joshua is not giving us complicated marriage advice here. It's just very good and basic foundational things that God, it turns out, does have a right to tell us, in general, whom we should marry. Because he invented marriage in the first place, and so he's saying marriage is this way. You are, first of all, bound to God. You belong to him. And so you want to marry someone else who likewise is a child of God and belongs to God. And then you come together and pledge your vows to each other. So watch what you worship and be careful to marry a fellow believer. Joshua, as old and advanced in his 110 years, he's like pleading with you. And if we were there at the big family reunion with great grandpa Joshua, would we be humoring him, holding our own counsel, like as soon as he goes, I'm going to do whatever I want? Or would we see this is a wise man? God's brought him through a lot. And so this is like very good stuff that he wants me to receive. How well did Israel do with these commands? And how will any of us do in obeying the Lord? Will we do so by just trying extra hard to obey? Verse 14 it tells you the power behind any obedience. Joshua says, Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. You know, God has kept every single one of his promises concerning you. That's the only way any of us are going to stay on the path. By God following through on his promises. More so than the strength of my own promise to God. Not a single word from God has failed. That is deeply encouraging it's also distressingly sobering because if you pick up Joshua's point in verse 15, where he's going with this, he's like, not only is God faithful to follow through on every promise to bless you, but God, that same faithful God will follow through on his promises to discipline you. Joshua's final speech to the elders of Israel foreshadows Jesus' great commission to his church before he ascended into heaven. 
like Joshua, who reminds Israel that they have witnessed so many miracles, Jesus tells his disciples, you are my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. As as Joshua gave the elders two final commands, worship and marriage, so Jesus tells his disciples to go out there to every nation and teach them to obey every single command of Jesus. But notice that it's precisely at that point going out to the nations. It's precisely at that point of our relationship to the nations that the mission of Joshua and the mission of Jesus are different. Israel was given a a mission of judgment, death to the Canaanites. Jesus has given you a mission of new life for every nation. Paul calls that mission the ministry of reconciliation. Uh, isn't, isn't that a wonderful thing? If you want to know what the unfinished business is in your life, that you should devote yourself with however many years God gives you, that unfinished business has something to do with reconciliation, with the healing of relationships, with forgiveness, starting with your own relationship with God. In the very middle of this 16-verse chapter, in verse 8, we read, You shall cling to the Lord your God. What, what, what do you think it means to cling to Christ in real life? Well, it means that you stick with Jesus. You hold tightly to him. You are loyal to him. You, you embrace him with affection. Scripture tells us to hold tightly to certain things. For example, it says a man shall leave his father and mother and cling hold tightly to his wife. Elsewhere in scripture, we're told, hold fast to what is good. Hold fast to the word preached to you. Hold fast to the word of life. Hold to what you were taught. Hold the mystery of the faith. Hold fast your confidence. Hold the confession of of your hope without wavering. Hold fast, it says in the book of Revelation. Hold fast to the name of Jesus. When Joshua told Israel to cling to the Lord, how how well did they end up doing with that command? Well, they did pretty well, actually. That entire generation of elders of Israel who listened to this speech They were faithful to the Lord the rest of their life. It's a really encouraging thing. But several hundred years later, Israel's famous king, King Solomon, is described by the author of 1 Kings 11 in this way. The author says, not only did Solomon marry multiple women from Egypt, from Moab, from Eden, from the land of the Hittites, from Sidonia, lists them all. It's all rather embarrassing. 
But not only did he do that, the author of 1 Kings says Solomon clung to them. He uses the language from Joshua 23. Solomon clung to them. Now, thankfully, we can be encouraged that another king after Solomon, King Hezekiah, 2 Kings describes Hezekiah this way. That this other king, he held tightly. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments of the Lord. So, there it is for us, right? Like Solomon, are we clinging to the stuff of this earth? Are we clinging to our pleasures or our ability to make shrewd alliances in life? Or with Hezekiah, are we holding tightly to the Lord? Now, the good news isn't, well, we have this great ability to do so. The, the, the good news, the gospel, is that Christ has grabbed hold of you and is holding tightly onto you. That's the way Jesus describes it. He says, you are held tightly into my hand. He's grabbed hold of you. And he says, no one can take you out of his hand. No one can take you out of his father's hand. So you are doubly gripped. And in that strong, secure place, may God give you the strength to get about the unfinished business in your life of the ministry of reconciliation that people from every nation might know the forgiveness and grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, Lord God, we, we ask that you would soften our hearts towards you, towards your word, towards our neighbor, towards the very people that we've given up on, and ask, O oh God, that in your great kindness and patience and love, that you would rescue them and rescue us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just uh, recite for us all a good word from God in his word. This is 2 Corinthians. May, to, to you and me, to all of us, may the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.